The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast. And today's podcast is a special edition following up on our 2019 Spring Theology Conference. As we await the release of the rest of the audio, the lectures and the sermons, we have decided to uh, release preemptively the Q&A sessions from the conference. And so in this first Q&A session, we have Dr. Kevin Backus of the Bible Presbyterian Church of Grand Island moderating a panel discussion with a number of our speakers, including Dr. Ian Hamilton of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales, Dr. Ryan McGraw of the OPC, Dr. Tony Curto of the OPC, Dr. Jonathan Master of the OPC and Cairn University, Pastor Phil Proctor of Sterling Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Sterling, Virginia, Pastor Jeff Kingswood of Grace Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in Woodstock, Ontario, and of course, Dr. Joseph Piper of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and the Presbyterian Church in America. I note the denominations to give you a picture of the ecumenical nature of our Spring Theology Conference. We have men and women and children from all over the world and from Reformed and Presbyterian denominations all over the world that join us once a year for a special week together where we sing, sit under sound, biblical teaching, and learn of the things of God in a context a little bit different than where we're learning the rest of the year. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to this panel discussion. The first question did get cut off a bit, but it's with regards to Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so I hope you enjoy this special edition of Confessing Our Hope and you find it a benefit to you. 1834, he was then unforgiven, in quotations, of his previously forgiven debt. Was this servant forgiven of his sins? Yeah, I think in Matthew 18, it's, uh, it's an illustration that the Lord's giving of the nature of how we should forgive others uh, based on uh, the forgiveness that we've received. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, strictly speaking, read it in terms of him being forgiven and then unforgiven of, of sins in the sense that we speak of with, with the Lord, but rather as illustrative of uh, the way in which the Lord commands us to forgive others based on the forgiveness which we've received. Thank you. Uh, anybody else want to jump in on that before I move on? It, was that a yes, Phil? You took that? Yes. Okay. With great fear and trepidation. Uh, it seems to me like this is a, an exposition, or at least in parallel, with our Lord's Prayer. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then verse 14 of Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the, the Matthew 18 is opening up in picture what Christ is stating in, in the Lord's Prayer and the subsequent verses. All right. Anyone else? Then Reverend Kingswood. Oh, there you go. Are all Christians totally depraved? Or are Christians totally depraved? I'm just reading. Yeah. No, I'm saying yeah to Joey. <laughs> He's saying things to me here you can't hear. Um, 
No, we're given a new heart, a new nature. And uh, we're now able to love the Lord. We're able to respond by grace to him and to uh, experience the law in a new way, to experience it as a pattern for our sanctification as uh, we are remade in the image of Christ. Anyone else or shall I go on? Dr. McGraw, in light of 2 Peter 2.1, saying there were false teachers who, quote, denied the Lord who bought them, close quotes, how do you defend particular redemption? Uh, good question. Is this on? Doesn't sound like it. Okay. It's working? Let me see. There we go. Just not smart enough for it. Um, so in terms of uh, denying the Lord who bought them, in God's providence, just talking to someone about this uh, about five minutes ago, but um, the way I would understand a passage like that one is however you want to term it, there are, uh, there's a difference between the external administration of the covenant of grace and its internal saving essence. And what this often means is there are ways of describing people in their external connection to Christ and his church that differ from the internal saving benefits. Uh, one example would be in Deuteronomy 32, I believe around verse 5, the Lord says about Israel, this is my son whom I purchased or bought. And then the next verse, the Lord says, they're not my children. Uh, why? Because of their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience. So on in, in the one hand, they are my son. On the other hand, they're not my children. You see something of this in Romans 9, where Paul refers to unbelieving Jews as uh, to them belong the adoption. And yet he's asking the question, why did so many not believe? So there are external uh, non-saving benefits and even a connection to Christ in the covenant in the church that we need to distinguish from internal saving essence. So uh, denying the Lord who bought them in Second Peter 2, I would see as relating to the external, whereas uh, in Romans 3 and other places, this is not the same thing as when Paul's describing Christ propitiating for our sins. Okay. And yes. And I think this was mentioned yesterday, uh, and it's in Dort, uh, head for uh, the need to deal with uh, brethren in the church with the judgment of charity. And there, I think Peter's pattering that for us. Or you look at, you know, Paul always speaks to the church as the saints. So uh, that's how we are to treat those. In fact, I remember we were in Scotland one time when it didn't it barely got dark. We had to catch a ferry early in the morning and went to a discussion group. And I said, Pastor, we've got to keep it very short. We got into the fact of how they deal with their people, particularly their young people. And, and they do all their Sunday evening services to address the unconverted. And I said, this is all wrong. This is the church. And uh, we were up very late. But we've got to learn to... Uh, to deal with God's people as the church. We still address hypocrisy and warn deceitful people, but we do also have to recognize this is the church. Dr. Hamilton. I've 
always found it helpful to think of it in terms of Judas. Uh, Judas is called a disciple, uh, a follower. Uh, he looked like one. Uh, he talked like one. He was called to be one, but he really wasn't one. And I think that's the kind of dynamic that's going on in Second Peter. Um, Dr. Piper spoke about a judgment of charity. Uh, that's right. I think Peter is speaking phenomenologically. Uh, they, they looked like those who had been bought by Christ. John Owens has a very lengthy, um, if I remember rightly, exposition, and he, he dwells at some length, whether fruitfully or not, you can judge if you want to read it, on the fact that the Lord there is called despotes, I think it's despotes agorazzo, isn't it? Um, and that's not used in that form anywhere else. I think, in the epistles. But think of Judas. He looked the part, he claimed to be the part, he talked the part, but at heart he wasn't the part. John says in, in uh, 1 John, uh, they were among us, but they weren't of us, or they would have remained with us. I also think here in this particular passage, what Peter is saying is there are these ones who appear to be in the ministry. They were one of us, but they didn't remain with us, and they go out preaching and teaching false doctrine. And the false doctrine that identifies them as these false prophets is that they deny the blood that has been shed for, uh, for God's people. So they are to be aware of those and to judge that teaching on the basis of of how they do speak about the atonement, what they do teach about uh, Christ's sacrifice for sin. I just had a brief comment. I mean, this is an issue that comes up quite a bit. And I'm also thinking of uh, in, in Hebrews where it talks about apostates uh, trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. Um, again, there's an external sanctification being set apart versus an internal saving sanctification. Um, I would recommend in uh, Herman Vitzius's book on the Apostles' Creed, he has a nice summary of uh, coupling these external and internal blessings side by side. And he's got six or seven of them. Um, and I, I believe it's in the section introducing the doctrine of the church. Ready for another? Dr. Curdo, the canons in the Bible say the, res the response to the issues with election is who are you to talk back to God? But how would you answer a friend struggling with her family's unbelief and wondering why God didn't choose to save more people and considering election unloving because it's limited? Well, one of the things that the, the authors of the canon said was, as I understand it, you can't say that someone is non-elect just because God hasn't worked in their life at this particular time. So even as someone is dealing with members of the family that are hostile or whatever, I don't automatically conclude, well, they're unelect. I keep preaching the gospel to them, knowing that the gospel is the means that God uses to bring his elect to himself. Now, some of his elect don't get brought to him until very late in life. Some of his elect get brought to him early on in their life. But it's always through the means of the gospel. So in that context, we, from my perspective, we just keep preaching and, and persevering with the proclamation of the good news that, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
and any who call on his name will be saved. All right, uh, let me go back to uh, Dr. McGraw. The Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith lumps regeneration and effectual calling together and attributes both to the Holy Spirit. Although the Father calls by the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that effectual calling is primarily the work of the Father, for example, Romans 8.30. Can you confirm this? And if you agree, do we need to take this exception when licensed slash ordained, etc.? I already answered this question in person to the individual, but uh, it might might help some others. Okay, we'll throw it. <laughs> um, and the larger catechism also adds that uh, effectual calling is in a special work of God, the Holy Spirit. We need to remember what I said earlier about the works of the Trinity being undivided, and couple that with what theologians call the appropriate works of the persons. So you could the uh, Father originates every divine work, the Son effects it, and the Spirit perfects it or brings it to completion. Um, and so when you think of creation, God speaks and brings the world into existence by his word. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. The Father sends the Son. The Son is incarnate, and he's conceived by the power of the Spirit in the womb of Mary. Um, Ephesians 1, the Father plans salvation, the Son purchases it, the Spirit applies it. And so when we say that effectual calling is an especial work of God the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is that the Scriptures teach us that unless one's born of water and spirit, it can't see the kingdom. In other words, the Spirit has to come to us first before we come to God. And so even though John 6 talks about the Father drawing us and the Father calling us, that's why I said he does it by his word and spirit. So the spirit comes to us, changes the heart, and, and draws us to God. In a similar way, uh, the benediction that most of us know from the end of 2 Corinthians says uh, the Father embodies the love of God. You know, the, the love of, of uh, the Father is singled out there, the grace of Christ, etc., um, and yet, Ephesians 3 talks about the love of Christ that passes knowledge. So the love, of Christ, the love of the Father irradiates to us through His Son. And we can speak of the call of the Father, the call of the Son, the call of the Spirit, but it doesn't deny the fact that there are appropriate works of the persons that reflect who they are. Should it be an exception? It should not be an exception. I'm happy with it. Anyone else? No. Reverend Kingswood, you spoke much about the law last night. How would those holding to a republication covenant theology differ from your application? How serious of an error is their view? Me. Oh. I don't even know where to start. Um. <laughs> First of all, republication is a question, for those of you who aren't aware of that, what that buzzword means. It's a question of whether the law belongs to the covenant of grace or the covenant of works. Um, how does it fit into that 
whichever one you see it, and into the paradigm and, and the uses of the law appropriately. I think confessionally, the law is a part of the covenant of grace. And we, we see it in its usages there in, in Romans 3. And I'm not even sure, I, I mean, I haven't read up on it, and somebody might have a better insight on this than I do. I'm not sure how the republication people would read Romans 3. But I, I confessionally, I, I can't see the position. Uh, it, it just, it's a part of the covenant of grace. And the Lord uses it to bring his people to himself. There are other uses of the law, but that's what we're looking at in Romans 3. That the Lord is using that law, if you like, as a means of grace, as a way of convicting his people, uh, of calling them to see his goodness to them in, in redemption, and, uh, and showing them that their works are of no avail. So I can't see it fitting into a republication paradigm, but it probably does. I, I, I haven't read enough on it. Phil? So uh, I serve in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and uh, was involved in the administrative committee that oversaw the work of the Republication Committee. And uh, I'm trying to uh, faithfully reflect what the OPC's Republication Committee tried to come down on. The, the challenge, uh, as I understand it, is that in Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 19, Section 1, it states that God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him in all his posterity, etc. And then Section 2, this law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments. So what the Orthodox Presbyterian Church attempted to do or tried to do, whether faithfully or not, is, uh, or well or not, is, is a matter of debate. Uh, was to distinguish between substantial republication and administrative republication. If we are saying that the law is a substantial republication of the covenant of works, then we are out of accord with the Westminster Confession. If we're saying it's administrative republication uh, of the covenant of works, then we're inside the bounds. That's where the OPC tried to end up on that. <clears throat> A lot of the Puritans uh, following Turretin would say that there was a restatement of the promise that if you keep all of the law, that you will uh, have life. And I got to put that in there then for the third, first use of the law as Paul uses it. So that's a genuine promise um, that God makes to anybody that, uh, in fact, you can use it evangelistically you really want to be saved and you go to heaven, then you must obey all the law of God. That is a requirement. It hadn't changed. God doesn't change. And so that, that demand to obey God perfectly if you're going to have eternal life uh, is then reiterated in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I will add to that. I think that Christ fulfilled uh, the uh, first covenant through the Mosaic Covenant by obeying the law of God perfectly, meeting the requirement, and then paying the stipulation 
by offering himself as the curse on the cross. And so I think that, yes, it's there, and we should use it evangelistically, but uh, the law itself is given at Sinai as part of the covenant of grace, whereas the more radical uh, Republican people say, no, you're, you were saved by grace under the Mosaic Covenant, but the, the stipulations all have to do with inheriting the land. I think that's what the OPC committee said no to. I can say one thing. Um, Jeff said something in his message that I think was very important, and that is that fundamentally the law of God reflects the character of God. And I think that's what often gets lost in these discussions is some people say, well, there are law covenants and grace covenants. How do we know the difference between them? Well, if there's commands and there's threats and those types of things, law covenant. If there are promises and uh, grace and forgiveness, grace covenant. That works well until you read the book of Hebrews. <laughs> and suddenly you have both things attached to the new covenant. Um, and I think that what happens is there can be a tendency with some to treat the law as inherently a covenant of works. I think we need to step back, and I think this is what our confession does, and, and assumes that inherently the law reflects the character of God. It was used with Adam as a covenant of works. It's used for you and I as a rule of life. Um, but inherently it reflects God, and that's why the law becomes so important to being renewed in God's image. Please. Um, I, I would agree wholly with what Ryan said. Just one thing I would add. I think it's important that we understand that we receive the law from the hand of Jesus Christ and not from Moses. There is a redemptive historical trajectory in, in Scripture. Um, it's from the hand of Jesus Christ that we receive the law in its in its repristinated fullness. And I think that's imperative, that, as Jeff was saying last night and as Ryan just touched on, that we don't dissociate the law from who God is and God's perfect revelation has come in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and what we have in Matthew 5 through 7 um, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the lawgiver himself, um, in the fullness of new covenant revelation, uh, giving the law originally given at creation, codified and written in uh, the Ten Commandments, put into the ark to highlight their essential core principial significance. And he now brings it in its full clarity and shining glory into the life of the church. Well, in, in fact, that's the whole Jeremiah promise, isn't it? I'll write my law on your heart. And so there it comes in the mission being conformed to the, uh, to the image of God. So that's the beauty of the law. And it's not another law he wrote in our hearts, but he's now, in fact, let's say that, that uh, that's, Mount Sinai was an act of grace because what was left was a remnant of the law and the conscience. And God graciously gave now a uh, certified copy. And then what Christ does in the new covenant is give us the gracious ability to begin to walk by it.
just was reminded of something Thomas Goodwin, uh, great English Puritan, um, perhaps second only to John Owen. He said, if thou wouldst know what sin is, go to Mount Calvary. <laughs> Shall we move on? Since sure. we started with the last question in Romans 3, this one's about Romans 3.25. Dr. McGraw, God passed over sins previously committed, close quotes. Whose sins are being passed over, Old Testament saints or their contemporary pagan Gentiles? What does it mean that these sins are passed over because I have heard different takes. Do you have the, the textual reference there? Romans 3.25. The... Um, um, maybe I should look at it. I, um, I'm just reading. The <laughs> I, I can give an answer to this, I think. But Dr. Piper has been preaching through Romans on Wednesdays at the seminary. So uh, can I punt to <laughs> Dr. Piper? He didn't know you could do that. You, you can now. Just, like the phone of just remember, vengeance is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that we who sit up here agree that uh, Passover really is not a, a good uh, translation of uh, the term. I mean, by itself, it's in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So the main idea is that God did not continue to exact, uh, exact retribution. Uh, I tend to take it almost a double entendre. I think, it's, I think that's true for, on the basis of the Noahic Covenant. Remarkable thing that God says to Noah after the flood, um, that I'm no longer going to destroy the world in this way because, and he gives the same reason, he destroyed the world in that way. So God acted once uh, in such a radical fashion to demonstrate his justice and hatred of sin. But if he kept doing that, and this is why I think Noah covenant is part of the covenant of grace, he'd have kept having to erase everything and start over. We wouldn't be here today. And so by building on now through the forbearance that God makes in this covenant of grace that has an application to all people. And Hodge develops that in his uh, systematic theology so that uh, God would bear along with pagan uh, sinners. And then, of course, he did forgive the sins of his people through the sacrificial system, but not in the base of the sacrifices, but the basis of what he would do through the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Jews and Gentiles. And I, I can add one brief thing to that. I, I don't want this to become esoteric, but in the uh, Netherlands in the 17th century, there uh, was a debate between the students of a man named Votius and another man named Coxeus. And uh, Coxeus wrestled with this very question of her language like this and said, in the Old Testament, the saints had paresis, but not aphasis. Well, if you're reading the Greek text, which I have right here open, paresis appears here. 
And what he tried to argue was that God passed over the sins of the Old Testament saints but didn't forgive them because the forgiveness of sin is a blessing of the new covenant and Hebrews 8, etc. Um, Votius went ballistic over that. Um, and, and I think the idea and the reason why is uh, there is the idea on the one hand of a temporary situation looking forward to something better where the reality arrives and Christ actually does bring the remission of sins. <laughs> and yet D David is led by the Holy Spirit in the Psalms and Psalm 32 and 38 and a number of other places to praise God for the forgiveness of sins. So certainly, even in the Old Testament, looking at Christ, they had the forgiveness of sins. Um, but because of the work of Christ and how desperately dependent we are on the finished work of our Savior, this is largely why people have asked this question. So even good people. Just a quick expansion upon what Dr. Pipus said. It is, it is striking, if you look in your Old Testament, it's striking at key junctures in the Old Testament, how people are struck down by God. Uh, it happens in Exodus as God's presence, his visible presence gets closer and closer to the people, uh, people are killed. It happens on the first day of the building of the tabernacle, Nadab and Abihu go in and they're struck down immediately. And yet certainly later on, we see priests doing all kinds of things which would appear to be at least as as bad as what they do. And, 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 and why is that? I think, I think it's, a, it's a reminder to us of the severity of sin. The man gathering sticks on the Sabbath uh, is, is ordered to be stoned uh, by the Lord. And, and it's a reminder of the severity of sin. And yet, and yet you look through your Old Testament and you realize it doesn't happen every time just that way. Not everyone who offers strange fire is struck down by the Lord. Not everyone who gathers sticks on the Sabbath is killed by the Lord. Not everyone who covets, as Achan does, is, is killed by the Lord. And so we have these reminders of how serious sin is, and yet we also have this sense in which God uh, graciously doesn't exact that penalty in, in just that way. And of course, what Paul is saying is, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's righteousness is on full display because you see both the gracious nature of God in, in justifying sinners, and you also see punishment meted out for all the sins of his people. Since you got to punt the last one, Dr. McGraw, <laughs> how did the post-Reformation scholastics deal with the hypothetical with hypothetical universalism why is it usually held as acceptable in reform circles any specific arguments against it you have not shared i'm going to guess uh 5% of you understood the question um <laughs> hypothetical universalism i guess i need to explain that um basically through a Scottish theologian, John Cameron, sorry, and, and uh, also some <laughs> French theologians in the 17th century, some reform authors uh, started to take universal language that I alluded to earlier in the New Testament and say that there was a hypothetical decree for the salvation of all people. 
So hence, hypothetical universalism. However, in the decree of God, the Father still chose some, the Spirit um, uh, changed some, but hypothetically, the Son uh, died for all. So there's a universal atonement. And so you could tell by the way this, this whole debate is couched, this is a different realm than we're used to dealing with because it's, it's dealing with logical connections within the decrees of God. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you haven't had a conversation about that this week. Uh, it's not <laughs> as common. Um, in the English version, they often would, the hypothetical universalists would split the atonement into two parts. And they would say that he died for all men in one respect, and he died for the elect only in another respect. So I believe in particular redemption plus this broader uh, redemption that would make all men savable. Why were they viewed as reformed? Well, they were and they weren't. Um, they were in the sense that men like Moses Amarod in France were well-respected in the reformed world and read widely, even though he held this hypothetical universalist view and retained their credentials in reformed churches. Um, Francis Turretin and Johannes Heidegger worked to effectively outlaw them later in uh, the century in Switzerland and actually made a confession of faith that ruled them out, but it never gained much traction. Um, and I, I think the, the view known as hypothetical universalism is fairly rare today. It's, it's sort of a different way of approaching things. There are some. Usually people equate it with what we call four-point Calvinism. What I'm trying to say is it's different because it deals with the logical order of the divine decrees. Um, but one thing I'll say is, uh, one thing I love about church history is that it's messy. I mean, in other words, you don't always like what you find. You don't have to agree with everything that you find, but it's there. And it does give you things to think about and a sounding board uh, to work with. So would I vote for a hypothetical universalist in my presbytery today? Uh, no. Have some reformed authors done so or tolerated that in the past? Yes, I'm free to disagree with them. So. All right. Please. I just was remembering when I uh, was being asked to go to the church that became my first charge in Scotland. I had just finished postgraduate studies in Edinburgh and the pulpit committee met me and the first question I was asked was, what's your view of fundraising? <laughs> Fast forward 20 years, I was 20 years there and the Lord after about the 10th year changed things. My first question in Cambridge was, could you please explain to the congregation your understanding of the post-Carolinian divine's understanding of hypothetical universalism. <laughs> After speaking for about 30 seconds, I thought, no one in this place has any clue what that question's about. <laughs> so I said, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> um, and that's view two that I mentioned, actually. 
But uh, the only other thing I, I forgot to mention is if you read someone like Turretin, um, his primary response to these men is actually uh, based on the unity of the Trinity. So much along the lines that, that I presented today. Dr. Curdo, the Lord doesn't just, quote, pass by sinners, close quotes, but, quote, foreordains to everlasting death, Westminster Confession 3.3, and ordains them to dishonor, Westminster Confession 3.7. This doctrine is sometimes rejected by Reformed men. How robust should we be in defending double predestination? For example, should a man be rejected on the floor of Presbytery for agreeing the Lord, quote, passes by, close quotes, but not reprobates? I'm looking for a place in my notes just uh, in terms of reprobation. I was, as I was re reflecting on, on God's decrees and how it opens in election, and I made the statement that God's unconditional election is particular in the sense that um, God had my name on his lips. God chose to love me in Christ, even as a sinner. And I wrestled with the question, does that mean that God predestined in terms of that one that he doesn't choose in the same way? In other words, does he say, I'm going to uh, send this one to hell? And, and I think that that's an interesting question. And I don't think that you necessarily, in a, a doctrine of pre, uh, double predestination, which I do believe in a doctrine of double predestination, I think God has determined by his decree that men are punished for their sins. And the decision of God, according to the divines in Dort, said God's determination is to leave them in their common misery, God's determination is not to grant them saving faith in the grace of conversion, and God's determination is to finally condemn and eventually punish them for their sins. And that's a determination on God. God just doesn't simply pass them by and say, what, come see, come saw, whatever happens, happens, and that's all there is uh, to them. He determines to leave them in their common misery, to, to be uh, under his wrath and curse uh, for their sin. He determines not to grant them saving faith. He withholds saving faith uh, and the grace of conversion. And then to finally condemn them and eventually punish them for their sins. But in all this, God is not the author of sin. Man is responsible for his rebellion against God. We deal with this every time we read John 3. Uh, one of the most probably the most famous verse of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. There you, there you have double predestination. Uh, very practically and, and scripturally and pastorally presented to us. Uh, that, you know, however you want to read the decree 
we were just reading it here in the confession. But by Genesis chapter 3 and the judgment on sin, and before that, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. There you've already got predestined unto destruction. If you eat of it, you shall die. There you have it. And, and Christ came to deliver us from that. And so the, the uh, election unto damnation, if you like, is already accomplished. Um, the language in the uh, Westminster Confession, paragraph 3 of, of the chapter on decree, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, others foreordained to everlasting death. And then when it works out reprobation, it does so basically in the language of Dort, uh, where he passed by uh, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor. And Francis Beatty and Dr. Smith uh, following him uh, and others as well point out that the standards never use the word predestined uh, for reprobation, but for ordained. And this gets to what uh, Pastor Kingswood is saying, so that uh, God chose uh, to life uh, those whom he elected. He foreordained to leave in their sin those whom he passed by. But it's still a double predestination. It's an equal I'm going to say equal ultimacy. Um, one's as invariable as the other. Um, Dr. Hamilton. I think it's a very much misunderstood phrase. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that uh, predestination to life and predestination to death um, are viewed differently in the Bible and in our confessional standards. Election is sovereign, reprobation is judicial. They're not symmetrical decrees. I think that's why when the Westminster Divines came to discuss chapter three, uh, if my memory serves me, it's page 151 in the minutes, Mitchell and Struthers minutes. George Gillespie, one of the six non-voting Scottish commissioners said quite, Strikingly, let us frame the sentence so that each man may make his own sense. And the prolocutor, um, Edward Reynolds, uh, followed up by saying, yes, let us not include scholastical things in our confession. The divines were um, an assembly of men who were not all of one mind on this matter. Uh, the Westminster Confession is an ecumenical, Catholic-spirited document. It betrays that in a number of areas. The minutes betray it significantly when you read the discussions and perhaps even read between the lines in the discussions. But I think for me, the important thing to remember is that uh, the doubleness in predestination is not symmetrical. Election is sovereign. Reprobation is always judicial. And maybe the only other thing to add to that, and this might be part of the concern, is God is not passive in anything that he does. And so is God still active 
in reprobation, yes. And I think sometimes people hear uh, the passing over language as though God is passive, not active. And we need to say, and I think everybody here is, has been hinting at this, God is still active, but I like the language being asymmetrical as well. Just a quick um, add-on to what Ryan said. It's uh, well put, but uh, it, it is worth noting regarding the personal nature of God's foreordination uh, to damnation. Uh, the, Paul doesn't, when he quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't say, Jacob, I loved, and then whatever happens, happens. I mean, he does say, <laughs> Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I, I hated. And so there is... In that context, personal language uh, given in the context of, of Esau's foreordination unto, unto death. Dr. McGraw, since we cannot tell unbelievers that Christ died for them, can we tell our children that Christ died for them? Why or why not? Well, um, I offer Christ, hopefully to all people in the same way, so when I'm speaking to my children, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting not to abstract the death of Christ from Christ for them any more than I would for anyone else. Um, I'm telling them, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Um, I often joke with our children who I don't see out there right now, but um, you know, you don't have the right to be a non-believer. Well, nobody does. But their baptism and the covenant promises gives them a double obligation. And then I turn that around and say, you have a double privilege, and you also have every encouragement uh, to believe in Christ. So it's not just a matter of, of uh, my wife and I walking by faith, expecting the Lord to work in their hearts, but teaching them to expect the same thing. So what we're trying to do is teach them to walk by faith in Christ, not to believe in an abstract concept. Reverend Kingswood, how is it that professing Christians can say, I prefer to think of God this way, as if he could be changed by man? That's a violation of at least two commandments. Um, it's idolatrous. I prefer to think of God this way. Is, is just blasphemous idolatry. I don't think I need to say anything else. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is Dutch. <laughs> yeah, my name was Koningswald. Um, anyway, um, it, yeah, it, it, it's a foolish, foolish thing to say. We do not prefer to think of God in any way. That, we, we have God revealed to us by his word, sovereignly given through the spirit. God tells us who he is. And, and we don't imagine him. That, that's the, the language of John Lennon. It, it's, you know, and it, it's foolish idolatry. Thank you. Um, just so you know, we have about uh, 10 minutes left and about 25 questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to do all the questions that are addressed to an individual first, so Ryan, roll up your sleeves. Just so 
Yeah, I not don't. Sorry, I'll do the ones we have left. So here's the first one. Um, in John 3:16, what does it mean? What does it not mean in general? How would you preach it? And how would you not preach it? Yeah. If you want, I can just change the name. Who would you want to? I don't have a microphone. <laughs> That's cheating. Um, okay, here. I'll give you a back. Okay. All right, better? Um, well, I, I thought I already answered the question in the message, so maybe I wasn't clear. Um, again, I think the question that we have in terms of did Christ die for every individual without exception is not necessarily the question that John had in his mind. And uh, I think we should preach unambiguously that God is the savior of the world in Christ. And the issue there is not which individuals has he died for, but this is the only propitiation for sin, for sinners, and God is displaying his love again, not as an abstract concept, but in his son. And we're offering the son to people, which is why Jesus says in, in the verses uh, Jeff just quoted uh, earlier, that he who does not believe in the Son is condemned already. So the whole issue uh, revolves around not the fact that the world is the object of our faith in the promise, but Christ is the object of our faith who's offered to the world. And while you still have the mic, you said John 17 is referring to God's elect, but it seems the context is referring directly to the apostles. What are your thoughts? I almost mentioned that, um, and now I have to. So uh, in, in the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself that the Father would glorify him in the glory that he had before the world was. In the section that this uh, verse is found in, uh, he prays for his disciples, especially for the, tw for the apostles, uh, the 11, basically, at that stage. And then the last part of the text, he prays for us, for those who would believe through their testimony. I think we need to understand all the parts together. There is a special role that the apostles had as uh, witnesses of Christ, and he undoubtedly does pray for them. But his prayer for himself unambiguously uh, is connected to those whom the Father has given him. This includes the apostles for whom he prays and those who will yet believe. And that's why I actually quoted from all three sections of the chapter uh, to show that in each case the reference is particular. And then is there a sense in which Christ died for everyone in the visible church, a design broader than the elect but narrower than all humans? Please make reference to Hebrews 10, for example, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and 2 Peter 2, 1, as pertains to the scope of the atonement and apostasy. Uh, see previous answer. Gotcha. So, anyone else want to... Okay. <laughs> uh, I think you have done that one enough. All right. Some of the ones directed to... We'll give one here for anybody. 
is believing that Christ dying for every single individual and that his atonement is not efficacious until one believes basically the Arminian position, the same thing as not believing in substitutionary atonement. Don't Arminians believe in substitutionary atonement, but that's it, that, but that it's just not applicable until the human believes and initiates it for anybody. Dr. Pipus. I'll make a short comment. Okay. You want to go first? Yeah, then you can correct me. <laughs> uh, the, um, I just had brain fog. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and now I have brain fog. Um, yeah, the, the question is about... You guys are just trying to time out the clock, I know. <laughs> is believing that Christ dying for every single individual and that his atonement is not efficacious uh, until yeah. one believes, basically the Arminian position, the same thing as not believing in substitutionary atonement? Yeah, well, I, I can't document this offhand, but one thing that intrigued me years ago was, uh, I believe it was J.I. Packer who said that modern evangelical Arminianism borrows from Calvinism. And what he meant was, I stated earlier in the message today, most people don't realize 17th century Arminians denied substitutionary atonement. They saw the logic and they realized if you have Christ as a substitute, um, if he died for all men, he must save all men. And clearly that's not what happened, so there's no substitution. Most of uh, uh, our Arminian friends probably do believe in substitutionary atonement. What I'm trying to say is that's not a consistent position to hold, but that's why I uh, alluded to Ian's comments about um, our hearts being better than our heads. There are people genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ as their substitute who would still say Christ died for all men, and, and I've just said that's inconsistent. The, um, many of the remonstrants and later Arminians as well, for example, the theology by Watson, actually adopt what's called the governmental theory of the atonement for that very reason. The more consistent thinkers amongst them recognized that they had a substitutionary atonement that uh, there would be a universalism. So what our evangelical friends have done is really added an element of works uh, to the atonement. And so, and it was interesting, I never noticed this before today, but actually Dort addresses this when it says that uh, he died for, uh, or, no, the reprobate, not just the sin of unbelief, but all sins. They were, had the same kind of folks around then. So what you'll often hear is that Christ died for every sin but the sin of unbelief. And if you believe, then you're completing his work. So Spurgeon illustrated it. You build a bridge across the chasm. You get five-sixths of the way across. You leave out the last span. Uh, that's their view of the atonement. So Christ has done 90% of it, but you have to complete it. And so... If, if I committed one sin and never sinned again, and I was the only person in the world that ever sinned, Jesus Christ would still have to die to save me. So, in other words, uh, if, the only sin, if there's any sin left, unbelief or anything else, it's enough to sink me into the pit of hell, and I need the blood of Christ. 
Okay, got one last question. We've got uh, about two minutes. Um, what is heresy? Is it always something that's damnable? And how does it differ from something that's only heterodox or erroneous? We'd like to go, it's for anybody, so we'd like to go for that one. I got in trouble when we had our federal vision discussion in Monroe. I was at the point, I had been warned that they were going to use, use this, and when uh, it had really gone down the drain, and our previous speaker had said he didn't see much difference in, in Steve Sissel's view of justification and our view of justification, I knew that we'd been had. And so I went back to our room and prayed about it, and uh, I came back out. I was given the last address, and I, I said to my friend, Steve, I said, Steve, you're teaching heresy. Well, actually, you, you probably could have blown the church up at that point. There was uh, shouting, there was weeping. Uh, Doug stepped forward to defend Steve and accuse me. Dr. Smith and I were trying to point out, and we could be wrong. Uh, I could be wrong. He could never be wrong. Uh, <laughs> Not anymore. That uh, in a confessional church, I will say there's a heresy that's not damnable because it's a denial of your uh, ordination vows. So it's uh, worse than heterodoxy because you're in a confessional church. So I made that distinction um, at that day. I wasn't saying at that point that they were, although upon reflection, I'm, I'm more and more willing to say it, it actually, at the end of the day, would lead to damnation. I think that's all we have time for. Oh, does somebody want to correct you? I'm sorry. I'm happy. <laughs> all right. Close in prayer. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, portraying for us in the scripture the, the wonderful mysteries of the redeeming work of Christ that are opened up to us in so many ways. And yet we certainly confess that we will not in, be able to rejoice and worship you in these things fully until we stand before you and you cause us to know you even as we're known. Thank you for opening up these things even more. Thank you for the dedication, the study, and the um, very openness of these men to minister to us today. Bless us now as we go off to our dinner. Keep us safe and return us again that we might uh, hear your word preached to us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition of Confessing Our Hope. If you're interested in saving the dates for next year's Spring Theology Conference on the Church and the Ordinary Means of Grace, mark your calendars for March 10th through 12th, 2020. We plan to have our Spring Theology Conference at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina again, and we look forward to seeing you. If you can't wait that long to join us for something here in sunny South Carolina, then I invite you to consider uh, going to gpts.edu slash summer. Again, that's gpts.edu slash summer to look at some of our course offerings that are available this summer, open to pastors, ruling elders, seminary students from other schools, our own student body, and even friends of ours from the surrounding community and from around the country who wish to learn more about either pastoral counseling through the book of Job or Presbyterian theology in the American 19th century. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.